What's up, it's Andy Fish and Black Hill Bride, and you were listening to Iron City Rock. Hey, this is Chip. This is JP. This is Carmen. From Chip Demonic, and you're listening to Iron City Rock. Hey, this is Wednesday 13, and you're listening to Iron City Rock. Welcome to episode 157 of the Iron City Rocks podcast, coming to you from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We'd like to welcome those of you not only from Pittsburgh, but also from around the world, and we hope you find the show enjoyable and check out the other 156 preceding episodes available on iTunes and at ironcityrocks.com. This uh, episode, we've got uh, a guest I honestly have been after for about two years, uh, horror punk legendary vocalist Wednesday 13 I uh, was also the vocalist of a band called the Murder Dolls with Joey Jorgensen from Slipknot uh, probably if you're a metalhead that probably rings a little more bells than uh, Wednesday 13 uh, but I got introduced to his music through a project he did called Gunfire 76 uh, and really really enjoyed it and then went back and checked out his catalog of work and have grown to really become a very big fan so this interview is going to sound a little fanish and I will uh, be freely admit that uh, before you listen to it. So I want to tell you about Wednesday 13. We'll be coming to Pittsburgh for an Iron City Rocks Presents show at the Ironworks, which is on Bates Street, which is in the uh, Oakland part of town. Uh, it is on June 30th. Uh, it will be Wednesday 13, headlining the show uh, with direct support from the Biters. And then also Chip Dimonic, who is no stranger to the Iron City Rocks, band called The Cheats, and another band called Children of October. So you can get those tickets at showclicks.com, that's S-H-O-W-C-L-I-X.com, and the tickets ironically are $13. So again, June 30th, Iron City Rocks presents Wednesday 13 at the Ironworks. So what I'm going to do to get you in the mood for that show, we're going to play some music from a couple of the bands. Uh, we're going to talk to Wednesday all about that and then later on in the episode we are going to talk to kind of hardcore uh, vocalist uh, Tesco V who is the vocalist of a band called The Meat Men who has a book out so we're going to talk to him all about that book so let's get into the song from Chip Dimonic it's called Make You Famous then we'll get to talk to Wednesday a pretty young girl You should be a star When you're in a magazine you will make your mommy so proud This could be your chance to see your name in light Come here
Wednesday 13. How are you doing, Wednesday? Hello, hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Uh, you're a you're an artist that I, I will freely admit up until about two years ago I was not familiar with, and uh, someone connected me with the Gunfire uh, 76 project, and I listened to it and loved it and immediately kind of went back and devoured your back catalog and absolutely fell in love with even more so you as a solo artist. Um oh. Yeah, because you, you, you kind of blend, in my opinion, kind of that a perfect blend of punk, you know, that old school kind of punk with, with a little bit of metal to it. So I wanted to kind of get an idea, where are your roots musically? I mean, what what were you into when you were in your kind of formative teen, teenage years? You know, it's, uh, you know, kind of exactly how you explain what I do. It is kind of punk, it's it's metal, it's kind of this hard rock, you know, it, it's, there's so many elements, and I think it's because of what I grew up on, and, you know, uh, I mean, 
basically for me, uh, uh, you know, as far as like the musical side, uh, you know, I, I was on the, I was of course on the Kiss and Alice Cooper and Twisted Sister, and that was a band that kind of struck me at first because it looked like horror movies to me, and I loved sure. horror movies as a kid, so I liked that type of imagery. And then, uh, you know, as, as I got older, you know, I, of course I listened to everything from Metallica to, uh, you know, stuff like that. But then I got into like Wasp, and Wasp like a darker, heavier yeah. kind of shock rock band, and then. You know, and, and then, you know, when I was like 15, uh, was when, uh, the, the White Zombie Los Exorcisto record came out in like 91. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I heard, I heard that as well. And then that was around the time Pantera Vulgar came out as well. So, yeah. you know, a lot of those, uh, a lot of that as well was, was a big influence on me. And I think you can hear that some of my heavier music, some of the heavier chugga chugga kind of chords, what I call the sure. Rob Zombie, uh, White White Zombie chords, you know. So, uh, so that's kind of, you know, so you, you take that element and then also, I'm a big fan of of everything from like like the Sex Pistols and the Ramones and mm-hmm. uh, and the Anti Nowhere League and uh, you know just uh, the the Damned. Uh, just my my musical background is all over the place. You know, I yeah. even like country music, so it's just you know for me. So when I when I when my music comes out, it just kind of comes out and it's this big melting pot of everything. So everyone can kind of hear a little bit of this and that in it. So I guess that's kind of a, a good thing. So it makes me kind of fit with. Any kind of audience, although they want to throw tomatoes at me at first and they first see me because I look like an idiot. Yeah, it was interesting when you said the name Black. uh, You said Wasp, and you know, obviously Blackie Lawless's project, and and it just hit me like lightning rod how similar your vocal styles are—not necessarily your lyrical content, but you know the style. Right, right. Oh yeah, I've I've heard the Blackie thing over the years as well, so that's a compliment. So, Um, what about your lyrical style? Because I mean, one of the things I, I that really drew me in is the sense of humor. Uh, you've obviously got kind of a punk attitude, but there's a great melody and hook to your songs. I mean, how do you, wh- where do you come up with lyrical ideas? Because you do some great play on words. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you know, I think it's just, uh, that's my personality. I think anyone that, you know, would see a photo of me and not know me personally would just be like, oh, that guy's some spooky goth guy that yeah. hangs out in a dark corner all day. But the people that really know me, I think, and it comes out in my lyrics, I, I'm a funny, goofy person. I mean, I love Caddyshack as much as I love Dracula. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So it's like, and, and I try to tie that in together with, with, you know, it's like, it's like with a, with a, with a campy B horror movie. You can go and go, oh man, that's hilarious. Jason just punched that guy's head off and you laugh, but you're at a horror movie. Yeah. So I kind of like, Take the same thing with my lyrics. It's kind of like, oh man, that's kind of violent, but it's kind of funny. Like you just said, I'm gonna run over your head and put it in reverse and do it again. Yeah. So it's kind of like it's just you know to me if it makes me laugh, it's fun like that. And uh, and 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 that's the thing, you know, I'm not the kind of guy who was trying to change the world with lyrics or anything. I just wanted to entertain people and kind of get them out of their everyday life and step into my world for a bit. You know, and even my world's kind of an escape from my everyday life as well. So it's uh, you know, that's that's where the lyrical the lyrical stuff comes from. It's just a uh. You know, it's uh, it's just from from television and things I grew up on and things that make me laugh. And I think it translates in the and the fans. You know, they, they it, within the audience, I can see fans that will catch on to the humor things and they'll wear funny T-shirts about yeah. my sh- about their songs. So it's a it's a really cool thing. You know, I don't have, I don't have the biggest fan base in the world, but my fans are very unique and it's very 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 cool. Yeah, I think it's a, certainly a sense of humor. And and you mentioned about the horror movies. It is kind of that. I mean. People don't watch Friday the Thirteenth Part Six because it's a great suspenseful, you know, horror movie. Exactly. They watch you're not, you're not getting it. To, yeah. like what, what humorous way is uh, Jason going to decapitate somebody? And that's that's kind of true. I mean, because your song, you know, I love the hook. You know, I can walk around for days singing "Happily Ever Cadaver."
yeah, and, and and that and that also the 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 you know aside from the lyrics, you know, I've always tried to make something like you said that's catchy that gets stuck in your head that you'll walk around for days going, God, I may I may hate that song, but I can't get it out of my head. Or you you know, it's like, and that's the way the Ramones were for me. You yeah. Know, when I heard you know, beat on the breath, beat on the breath with a baseball bat, I like, wow, that's morbid and weird. And I, and I, you know, and that's kind of where I've, I've taken my, you know, everything from, from that to like, you know, uh, you know, that, like the, the Ramones and, you know, from a catchy hook, from like a band like Motley Crue or something like mm-hmm. that. I've just tried to make something that's memorable that gets stuck in your head. And then when you go, wow, am I really singing a song about grave robbing? Yeah. <laughs> that's the, that's the, that's the other side of it. So it's always a, a fun, fun aspect of being. Grave Robin while wearing a skirt, exactly. Um, exactly. Um, I noticed a couple times in listening to some of your catalog, there's been a couple of references to uh, buckets of chicken. Uh, is that a, a personal favorite of yours? You know, I love the line "fry me like KFC," but uh, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, that's definitely been up to anyone that knows me. I'm a I'm a, I'm a chicken source. I just, uh, you know, I, I basically just I, I grew up in the South and I basically grew up on fried chicken, macaroni <laughs> and cheese, and great Kool Aid. And, uh, and I pretty much lived on that diet up until about five or six years ago, and I still kind of working into my daily routine. So, uh, yeah. everyone always knows me as the KFC guy. And, uh, when I first started touring, you know, I used to hit all the KFCs because they were like everywhere, like McDonald's. And, uh, sure. fans in England started bringing KFC, and I used to wear like, a KFC shirt on stage. So this big KFC kind of, kind of tied in. And, you know, and Colonel Sanders is a, is a kind of an evil, weird, kind of I- iconic dude over, over, the, over history. So, uh, I kind of put him in the category of, of Manson and, and uh, you know, <laughs> the celebrity, like Elvis, people like that. You know, he's a yeah. celebrity. Yeah. Now, uh, you mentioned your fan base. I mean, obviously, you know, you're, you're hitting the United States pretty hard in the next month. But um, is do you find different parts of the country more receptive to your style or even different parts of the world that, that seem to get your sense of humor and style of music more than others? Um, You know... I, I guess uh, it, it used to be uh, a thing years ago. Uh, it used to be mainly like this, like like England was the main place. That was where the the biggest place was. I would say sure. it was, you know, and there would be like small places, you know, or, or like in Holland or Germany, and, and you know, even in the states and stuff. But now, you know, I've kind of been you know doing this for so many. Years. I've been doing it like professionally, releasing like on major labels for ten years. But I've been playing since you know I'm, I'm 35. I've been playing since I was 15 and releasing records since I was 18, 19 years old. And sure. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of cool now. It's like, you know, I can go to England and have a huge crowd and then go to Germany the next, the two days later and, you know, and it's another crowd and it's, they're, they're similar, but they're different. I don't know how to really explain it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I guess some areas are a little more energetic. Sure. Um, the, the most place to me, it's exciting for me to see is, is in Australia, um, the past couple of years, my audience. The fan base has seemed to have grown a lot, and just uh, it just seems kind of brand new for for some people there. So it's exciting to go there. To, you know, I kind of feel like like wow, I've been doing this forever, and I'm just like shocking people here or something. You know what yeah. I mean? So it's kind of like new to them, so to speak. Where I've been going to England for 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 a decade now. Sure. Have you have you done much in South America? Never. I've never been to South America. Um, I'm actually uh, just in the past six months. I've been actually looking at uh, uh, the possibilities of going over, and I'm looking at with other bands, so uh, yes, that is in my works of, of doing in the next next year, hopefully. Yeah, I, I know. Even you know, with what we do, uh, there's some very rabid fans in Brazil, you know, which is, yeah. is great. You know, they they love their music, which is is wonderful. Um, oh, I, I can't wait to go there. So. 
Yeah, no, obviously the, the the murder dolls, I think, kind of put you into a spotlight uh, with uh, Joey. Uh, and you guys put out a phenomenal record. Uh, I believe that was last year or the year before. Um, but then, unfortunately, the, the U.S. tour kind of got cut short. Um, do you guys have plans? Obviously, Slipknot is going to be hitting the U.S. very hard this summer, and that's going to kind of wipe away 2012. But is it just kind of an open book at this point? Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, unfortunately, it just seems that bad luck kind of kind of plagued the uh, the murder dolls the, the first time. I won't say bad luck; it was just or mm-hmm. just not enough time in the world, so to speak. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, or, or fortunately, you know, like you said before, the, the murder dolls put me in the spotlight. It 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 did. I had there was no spotlight before murder dolls. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I, I'm indebted to Joey's, you know, for a lifetime. And he pretty much. You know, he discovered me out of the sticks. He he found my band I was doing for a couple of years and asked me to do a project with him in his downtime of Slipknot. And we, we put out our first record in, in 2002. And, you know, I, I got to go out and see the world and tour and get on an airplane for the first time in my life. And, right. you know, that was a whole new world. It opened up a whole new chapter in my, in my life. And, uh, you know, and it was a high, it was a roller coaster ride for one year. And then, Slipknot went back to do a record, and I was sure. on this high going, all right, well, what do I do now? Yeah. I got my foot in the door, and now I'm going to have to wait. And uh, and and luckily, I had records out before Murder Dolls that, that people had kind of caught on to when the Murder Dolls release came out. So I kind of had a background, so, that, so it was easy for me to get a record deal, and, uh, and I was already with Roadrunner, so they put out my solo record, and then I got busy with that, and then Slipknot did another record, and just, you know, there was no time. Joey and I was, you know, we just kept in touch, and and then it took us till 2000, uh, till 2010 to get back together to do another record. And then yeah. as soon as we record a record, you know, he's playing drums for Rob Zombie and then the unfortunate passing of, of Paul Gray with Slipknot. That was a mm-hmm. huge thing with, with, within the whole family of Slipknot and with us having Joey aboard. And, you know, uh, it was just bad timing on everything. And then, and then Slipknot did their, their, uh, their, their, their tribute, uh, run last year and just, mm-hmm. You know, there was no time, not enough time for us to do what we needed to do. And for me, you know, this is this is how I how I make a living, you know, uh, and, and things like that. So I couldn't just sit around and wait. So I had to keep my had to keep the ball rolling, so to speak. So yeah, to answer your question, I didn't ramble too long. No, no, please. Yeah, it's it's, it's, an, it's an open book. Um, you know, I I love I love the band. You know, like I said, it got me where where I am. The the last record we put out, Women and Children, last. There's one. I mean, it may be the, my favorite record I've ever put out. It just, just because I there was so much intensity in that record mm-hmm. and just such a good time put into it. And you know, and and if and if the band ever ever happens again, we never do anything again. I know we went out on a high note with that record. For yeah. Me. And uh, and and we got to do you know as much touring as we possibly could. And unfortunately, some stuff got cut short. But uh. But yeah, man, I, that was you know that was a big part of my life, and uh, if it happens again, it happens. But uh, if it doesn't, it doesn't. So, yeah. Well, yeah. I, 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 hate to, I hate to say it's ever going to happen because actually, you know, it's, it's reunion tour, and then yeah, you know, that was pretty So uh, just leave it open. Sure. No, that's that's certainly reasonable. As far as um, uh, gear wise, are you you still playing mainly ESP guitars? Yes, ESP okay. only. Uh, I've been with ESP since about uh, two thousand. Three, I believe, when I started with them. When I first started, when I murdered off took our break. I started with them, and uh, they've just been the, the greatest company for me. Uh, my my guy there, Alan, is he's he's the best, and uh, you know, just they just put out the coolest guitars. I mean, uh, you know, I, I was a big fan of Gibsons and and those and those styles, and mm-hmm. ESP make styles similar. And I, I've owned Gibsons for years, and 
now that I play ESPs, I mean, I honestly, I think that I just, to me, I prefer the ESPs over mm-hmm. any other guitar. Sure. As far as for amp wise, I mean, you got you get some. I mean, I don't know if that's you or if you have other you know guitars in the studio. You get some killer guitar sounds on your records, particular like amp wise that you're using. Um, actually, um, on the uh, on, the, on every record I've used something different. But uh, okay. in the past, in the past year, on the last record of the Calling All Corpses record, um, I actually started using Wizard Amplification. Uh, okay. Which is a which is a, a, a smaller company, but they're just. Um, they're just their amps are amazing. A lot of people know. I mean, there's some uh, like like Damon Johnson from Thin Lizzy, Alice Cooper mm-hmm. is where I heard of of these amps the first time because I was opening for Alice Cooper. Sure. And Damon and I are good friends, and you know, I was like, what is, you know, what is your guitar sound? It sounds great. And he introduced me to his guitar tech, which was uh, this guy named Rick who who owns the company, and uh, he just became a big fan and kept in touch. And uh, when I was in Australia two years ago, I went to the ACDC bar. Uh, in, in Melbourne, and the guy from Wizard Amp was sitting there. He just got off tour because he's Angus Young's guitar tech. Mm-hmm. Okay. And for some reason, he loved my band so much. He's like, I want to give you a Wizard endorsement. So uh, he sent me out a Wizard Amp right before we recorded that record. So the sound you hear on Calling All Corpses is a Wizard Amp. So okay. I'm pretty much full with those amps now. They're just uh, they're, they're they're just amazing, and a lot of people don't really know about them, but when they hear them, they're like, what, what the fuck are you playing? Yeah, that, that's so, uh, kind of yeah, exactly what I was... Wizard Ant. Wizard Ant. Uh, ACDC approved, and, and to me, that was that was enough. Yeah, how much more do you need than it? one of the young brothers? It's, that that exactly. works exactly. Um, you had mentioned you did a, a kind of a video blog the other day and alluded to a, a new album in the works for for 2013, uh, oddly enough, 2013. Yes. Um, do you have a lot of that material in the bag already, or um, are you just that prolific of a writer that you know you'll have it done in time, or how, how's that process work? <laughs> uh, no, I mean honestly, um, what I what I should do instead of driving myself insane like I like I do. Um, normally, what, like, what, for example, um, I finished recording Calling All Corpses this time last year. Okay. We finished we finished recording. It came out in October of last year, so I had that whole that whole time off. You know, I mean, not the whole time off, but I had that whole summer. Then we, then we toured, and then up to present day right now. So when I'm on tour and things like that, I never write. In between tours, I usually never write. But when, when we came back from this Australian run, I knew I had to get ready for a new record. So I basically i have had the past month and a half to write what will be the, the 2013 record. Okay. And um, So I basically gave myself two months to kind of write it. So okay. some people, it may, it may sound like not enough time. But I'm used to doing records sometimes. I mean, I've, I've wrote records in a week. My, my second record, Fang Bang, I wrote that in two weeks. Uh, Calling All Corpses, I wrote in uh, a week and a half. Okay, so two months. Just straight from scratch. So this, this is probably the longest I've, I've worked on something for me, which is which too much. Yeah, you're getting a little lazy there, maybe, giving yourself that yeah, much time. Yeah, but uh, I came up with some really, really cool stuff, and uh, it's a... Uh, this could be a different record. I, I think for me, if I had to, and I hate to compare it to people, you know, I hate when I hear like when Kiss is, you know, I know Kiss is doing a new record, and I hear Gene Simmons going, it's just like Destroyer. It's like, no, it's not going to be like Destroyer. Yeah, I don't, don't say that. That's misleading. It's never going to be like Destroyer. So I don't, I don't want to tell people, this is going to be like the Murder All Down, or this is going to be like, yeah, for my Transylvania record. But to me, in my head, music-wise, I think it's somewhere in between the last Murder Dolls album and my Transylvania record. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely got a heavier, heavier edge to it this time. And uh, but you know, I, I don't like to make the same record every time. And uh, so this time, I'm glad I took two months with it. I 
Um, I heard a ton of stuff, and I whittled it down to about 15 songs that I really, really liked. And I just, I, I wore them out in my head on the demo side of it. And sure. uh, we're planning to go the studio uh, August 1st and uh, and start recording that. But before that, we're actually putting out an EP uh, in October. Uh, okay. Like a, a five-song EP that's going to come out. Now, is that going to be all new material as well, or is there going to be some, some live stuff? Or okay. That's going to be... Um, um, uh, an, an EP that'll come out for the uh, for our, our October tour, which is overseas, um, okay. and that'll be um, it's, it's an EP. It's going to have two. It's going to have two new songs. Okay. Uh, right now, I'm planning to re-record a couple of older songs from my old catalog. Okay. Some songs that maybe I didn't think had the best recordings in the, in the mm-hmm. past, and and the band that I have right now are songs that we play live, and they just kind of got like some new life to it. So I'm just kind of. Uh, you know, wanting to re-record this. So I think that, like I said, the older recordings just don't really kind of stand up to what they do now. So I want sure. to give them a, a new, uh, a, a new spin on it. And, uh, I, I did that a couple of times with, uh, I re-recorded, like, I love to say fuck on one of my EPs a couple of years ago. And, uh, so that was, uh, that, that was really cool. A lot of fans like that. Cause they didn't like the older recording. So it's just something new. And, and plus I've lost control of a lot of, of recordings and stuff over the years with, yeah. with, with labels and things like that. And just, uh, kind of puts a lot of things back in my control. Yeah, yeah, you're not alone in that that battle. Uh, many, many right. artists yeah. having to do, go that route. Yeah. I certainly understand that. So that's great. Obviously, um, again, you're coming into Pittsburgh on June 30th. Um, I don't know if you'll yeah. have much much time when you're here, but if you get a chance, you're not far from where uh, George Romero shot Night of the Living Dead. If you want to go and I'll walk through some history. It's oh, about- great! Yeah, man. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, yeah, we'll see if we have time. This is a uh- I'm really looking forward to this, this tour. Uh, you know, just yeah. uh, I just feel like I've been having cabin fever here at my house, so it's like to actually get out and go on tour with my friends and stuff. I'm actually wanting to look around and do some sightseeing this time instead of being a, an idiot that sleeps all day. So uh, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. It's like it's like my summer vacation tour this time. Yeah, and you're you're literally going coast to coast in what is this almost exactly 30 days, or even less yeah. less than yeah. 30 days. So yeah, you're going to see all of America with that speed. Okay, well, I don't want to keep you any longer. I want to thank you for coming on the show Wednesday. Yeah, man, thanks a lot. Okay, thank you so much. You have a great day. All right, man, I appreciate it. All right, thanks a lot. track from Wednesday's latest album Calling All Corpses which came out in 2011 so you can check that album out it's uh came right around Halloween uh phenomenal record I think probably his strongest record uh today it kind of uh rivals Fang Bang but uh, a great album nonetheless so certainly encourage you to pick it up and again June 30th Iron City Rocks presents Wednesday 13 at the Ironworks on Bates Street in Oakland tickets available at show click dot com thirteen dollars uh or you can message us uh through facebook or twitter uh, or iron city rocks at gmail dot com if you need assistance finding tickets they are thirteen bucks so i want to thank wednesday again for coming on the show now we're going to get to an interview that aaron did with uh tesco v who is the vocalist of a hardcore band called the meat men 
uh, and I will freely admit I'm not a knowledgeable at all of the meat men, but uh, we have uh, been doing quite a number of book-related uh, interviews, and this is one of those as well. The book is called Touch and Go, The Complete Hardcore Punk Scene from 79 to 83 by Tesco V and David Stimson. Uh, it's available at bazillionpoints.com. Uh, that's B-A-Z, zillionpoints.com, or through Amazon uh, or Tesco's website uh, directly. So uh, for all those of you who were kind of into that kind of music in the early, early 80s, this is going to be a book I think that you'll really enjoy. Um, Bazillion Points has been a, a great publisher. They've uh, provided us with a lot of great guests over the last uh, year or so. So I kind of dubbed this as uh, installment number one, even though this is not the first time we've done this, of the Heavy Metal Book Club. So without further ado, Aaron and Tesco V of the Meat Men. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I have with me Tesco V, creator of the punk zine Touch and Go. So, Tesco, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. Good to be here. Good, good. So, I've got a lot of questions um, revolving around this this compilation I hold in my hand of all the Touch and Go magazines. Um, but I guess the first I want to start with is when you started this, you were employed as a school teacher. Is that correct? That's correct. So how does how how did you balance this lifestyle with school teacher? Because punk rock at that time, you know, back in the you know seventies eighties, that was a major commitment. Like, how did that blend together? Well, you know, it's it was kind of a world collide thing, and I kind of tried to keep the two spheres separate. So you know, thus the uh, kind of one of the reasons I came up with a moniker instead of my real name, which kind of uh, I wanted to like shoot from the hip and lay the wood to people I didn't like, and I thought, well, the best way to do that is to probably come up with a, a pseudonym, so that's where Tesco V came from, and, you know, I was teaching, and like, I, like I've like i said in other interviews, I was printing the magazine on the school copy machine at 3 o'clock in the morning, and, um, you know, just kind of like in my off hours, I, w- I was running home at lunchtime and getting the new Musical Express and the Melody Maker, and I was getting those every week, which was cost me a lot of dough for a teacher that was, you know, I was barely making 10 grand a year at the time. And, but I was just passionate about the music I wanted. I was eating up all the UK happenings until of course U.S. hardcore sort of blew up. And then, uh, you know, the, you could see the focus of the magazine kind of shifting. I mean, we still covered all the other, uh, um, you know, international happenings, but U.S. hardcore started to kind of take over and become the predominant uh, thing that we focused on after that. Now, what was your production schedule like in the early days? Because I see this collected from 79 to 83, but there are only about 22 issues. So how often were you putting these out? Did you have any real goal, or it's just we'll put it out when we put it out? Yeah, you know, I mean, we, we didn't really have a goal. At first, I'm, I'm sure we put them out faster than, than, than things kind of tailed off. The last five issues I did solo when Dave split to go move out east, and then I eventually moved out east, and... He wasn't interested anymore, and I just kind of didn't feel like the magazine had run its course, so I did the last five issues myself. And I'm sure they weren't coming out much more than six months apart there at the end. But So I just kind of like, when I felt like it was an issue, I proclaimed it an issue, and, you know, I would save you know save up all my live reviews and record reviews. And, and um, you know, when we Dave and I were doing it together, we, you know, we would each we, say, well, you do 12 pages, I'll do 12 pages. And when we were both done, we'd get together and, and uh, read each other's pages and grab a case of beer and yuck it up and have a good time. 
and say, this is it, this is done. So were you writing, like, continuously then? You were just writing all the time, and then it'd just be like, hey, I'll put an issue together. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, as as things progressed and as we uh, could afford to buy more uh, 45s and albums, and eventually they started coming in the mail, and I had the old, you know, World War II era Selectric on my desk, and well, I'm sure it wasn't quite that old, but the big, uh, you know, 60-pound typewriter and uh, yeah, just a pile of, you know, an ashtray full of cigarette butts and a, a bottle of gin on the table and just a lot of... Uh, hunting and pecking on the typewriter, just like spilling my guts about this great music that was exploding all over the world and trying to, from little old Lansing, Michigan, tertiary market that it is, I was trying to uh, tell everybody about all these wonderful happenings in the music world from my perspective. And, and I got to say, you had quite the perspective. And having this compilation, like like holding this book, because I, I was, in, in 79, I would have been right around eight years old, like somewhere in there. So you, like, I get chills reading this because you have first-hand accounts of, of stuff that I've only read, like, second, third, fourth-hand accounts or have heard passed down over the ages. Like, this is the real deal. I mean, this is like a piece of punk rock history, you know? Yeah, yeah, you know, it, it felt like it, too. It really felt there was something in the air, and I, it's hard to describe, and... Sound, might sound like ah, you should you had to be there, you know, kind of an old man thing to say, but it really was. You really could feel it, and you know that kind of I don't know, magic is the right word, but you know, going to D.C. for the first time and seeing Minor Threat Youth Brigade circle jerks at the old 9:30, and going down to Detroit and seeing you know when bands would come through. Of course, the Misfits were they were basically you know home away from home with Detroit, and then you know Negative Approach, Necros, The Fix, all the Michigan bands, you know, would warm them up, and Black Flag came and played this little bar in this little town and Club Doobie, and it was just like, and DOA played there, and it was just like, you know, hard to believe that uh, our heroes came to our town, and, uh, you know, we, we wrote about it and got to meet them, and it was like, wow. And when I moved out east, you know, it was really D.C., you know, the magazine kind of shifted coverage to, I was in love with it, you know, infatuated with that whole, uh, you know, D.C. hardcore thing when, as that was kind of exploding and, you know, just like, wow, it was giving me a chance to focus on two different scenes and kind of see, you know, the Michigan thing. The Michigan thing was more spread out and the D.C. thing kind of was more centrist. It was still drew from the suburbs of Maryland, Virginia, but it was uh, more of a, you know, everybody converged to the old 930 club or Madam's Organ or whatever, or D.C. Space, any of those uh, little clubs, and that's where that's where it all went down. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's amazing. I, I, I love reading through this magazine and just seeing all the things that are there. Now, how did you compile this book? Like, did you keep a copy of each issue, or did you have to, like, reach out to maybe old fans and stuff? Like, I, I can't believe that you have all this stuff still. Like, it's great. No, I'm... I saved a copy. You know, what I didn't say was the original layout pages, which would have been advantageous. So, But I did have a copy of each issue, um, and I had a, a guy that I hired to take each page, and, you know, he has Photoshop Pro and a professional scanner, and he had to kind of darken it. And since they were double-sided pages on, you know, regular old bond paper, he had to be, you know, you have to be careful. You could darken it too much, and you just suck the back, the page behind it in. So it was a labor of love it took him several months you know one page at a time 
And um, the, we took us five years to sell the book. Uh, and finally, Bazillion Points was it's like manna from from heaven. That they they you know everybody a lot of other publishers wanted us to to cut it down, make it a best of. Didn't want so many pages. And Bazillion Points was like as many pages as you want. Go for it. Add flyers. I got letters from Ian Mackay, you know, and the letters I had written to Ian Mackay that he had saved and he sent me copies. And it's just, it was just, uh, you know, bazillion points in Ian Christie. They were, it was a perfect fit. It couldn't have worked out any better. Yeah, you can't cut something like this down. I mean, you know, I've, I've already said it, but I mean, this is, this is a piece of history. This is something, you know, when, when my, my boy gets to a certain age, he says, Dad, what's punk rock all about? I'm going to sit down and start with this. You know, yeah, I mean, this, well, I, this yeah. is just phenomenal. Well, thanks, man. I'm I'm proud of it. It sold uh, better than I ever thought it would. And, yeah, Stephen, I don't know if you were aware of the Japanese have taken it. A company called Press Pop took it and made a limited edition of each individual issue as close to the original bond of the paper and color of the printing and everything and uh yeah, so that's uh, for those with uh, a couple hundred dollars in discretionary income. That's uh, available out there also. I saw that on your website. I was checking that out on TescoV.com. Yep. I saw mm-hmm. that, and that that really intrigued me. That that that's really neat. Pretty cool. Now I saw, like, through reading the book, that you were actually present for probably one of the most infamous things to me, at least, because um, I'm a huge John Belushi fan, and I read his books, and I remember hearing about the band Fear going on Saturday Night Live and trashing the place, and getting to be able to read your account of it in this book was was just amazing. Again, it's that whole, like, getting the first-person feel again. So can you talk a little bit about, like, how that came out, how you came to be there for that day? Yeah, I was uh, visiting uh, Ian Mackay, and I don't remember if it was the same time as the Process of Elimination Tour, which was this, uh, like a three- or four-date thing we did with Negative Approach Meet Men and Necros, but... I'm just hanging out in Ian's basement floor and his phone rings and it's this Mr. Mike guy who was this uh, kind of, I don't know, you're not old enough, but he was kind of a weirdo with a goatee who was on the early Saturday Night Live. And he yeah. said, Belushi needs slam dancers. And, and Ian was like, hey, you want to go up to New York and slam dance on Saturday Night Live? And who would turn that chance down? So it was definitely a who's who of uh, the punk rock uh, scene at the time, you know, Henry Rollins and Harley Flanagan and John Brennan from N.A. and um, Sab from Iron Cross and, you know, Barry and all the necros. And and it was just, it was really fun because we did, well, we did a dress rehearsal. We knocked over this at the time. It was a $60,000 camera. So then the Jeez. producers shut it down. And, you know, we were, we were falling on the people in the front row who were these, um, you know, uh, uptight New York uh, types. So, you know, that didn't go over too good. So the producer's like, nope, it's not happening. And then I guess Belushi, uh, who carried a lot of power, he lobbied to have it reinstated. So, yes, it happened. And, I mean, the results are on tape for all the world to see. I was actually, like, kind of mortified at what, how it went down. It was like, because I don't know how you chore- it, it felt, you know, it felt kind of like choreographed, like, but, but it was totally out of control. Like, everybody was ganking across the stage and kicking out the kicking over the mic stands and pulling the guitar cords out and it was just kind of a comedy of errors so I only lasted about half a song and then I just kind of went upstairs and watched the rest of it from I'm kind of a pencil neck geek so slam dancing's never been my forte so I was just kind of like 
it just I don't know. I was embarrassed as a as a human being because it was so ridiculous. In retrospect, I probably should have just stood there and watched the whole thing. But to me, the coolest thing that happened the whole night, um, the coolest thing that happened all night, and I have this, my wife was back in Lansing with her, our you know, video, cam- video uh, recorder that's like the size of a small car at the time. She was recording it, and so I still have the original tape, but at the very end, just before the producers cut it off, this kid walks out on stage with this huge pumpkin and smashes it, and John Brandon grabs the mic and says, negative approach is going to fuck you up. And that went out over, that was pre-five second delay, that went out over network television. Wow. Yeah, hard to believe, but it it indeed went out. And uh, so it was like, wow, pretty awesome. And and then my the other anecdotal thing that happened that I kind of look back on, like, why didn't I? There was a dressing room with, you know, marijuana smoke billowing out of it. And someone, I had gotten the word that leaving and John Belushi were getting high. And it was kind of one, a hallway with a door to the right. And I could, yeah. all I had to do is, we were kind of being herded like cattle back to the green room. And, and I, all I had to do was like detour into there. And at least I would have got a, got a, a quick snapshot of Belushi and leaving getting stoned before I got, you know, before security grabbed me by the, the neck and hauled me away, but, but just, you know, just being there and be being part of it was pretty special. Oh man. I just, I can't imagine that. I mean, that's, that's a moment that I have like read about, thought about so many times over the years. And when I flipped this open and, and read that, I'm like, Oh, I can't wait to ask him about this. Like that's, <laughs> you know, I was telling tell somebody like, like, you know, for, for me, this is, you're my American history. I, like you're, you're like, talking <laughs> to, to like a war veteran for me, you know? <clears throat> <laughs> now, um, another thing yeah. I thought was awesome in this magazine, especially in the later issues, is you started to work a lot with the artist Pusshead. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did that, how that relationship come about? How did you get him to, to do a lot of your covers and things and the different art in there? You know, I don't remember exactly. A lot of this is just connect the dots and this guy and that guy and talk, you know, word of mouth, writing letters the old-fashioned way of communication. So I don't remember the exact way it went down, but, you know, um, we, he just started to be a regular contributor and asked me if I needed anything for the new issue. And, um, you know, it's funny, the the greatest Pusshead story, though, was the Henry Rollins, um, the artwork that I commissioned Pusshead to do. And I, because Henry had kind of gone long here in Black Flags, so it was like, let's poke a little fun at old Hank and, do a, why don't you do something where, where he's got long hair and he's got his legs crossed and, you know, incense burners and make him kind of look like a shaman or a guru. And he's like, cool, man. So he did that up and we put it in the magazine and Henry got, Henry thought and flipped out and called Pusshead and yelled at him, called me and yelled at me. And basically that was the end of uh, my friendship with Henry Rollins. I mean, that we've spoken a couple times over the year and he was nice enough to, uh, do a piece for the uh, book, uh, an intro for the book, which is very cool because uh, considering we aren't close, <laughs> to say the <laughs> least, he uh, he was nice enough to do a forward along with Keith Morris, Neil McKay, and Corey Rusk, and Henry Owings, and a lot of other uh, people in the know out there, somewhere there, some, you know, just their own personal observations about you know, Byron Coley from Forced Exposure and people like that who, you know, if I would, 
you know, I'd like to think, you know, we certainly didn't invent the genre of the fanzine. I mean, you could look at early issues of Cream and Trouser Press, and you can kind of see where I got, and Slash, of course, and Search and Destroy, where I kind of got my motivation. Slash was probably, the magazine from L.A. was probably my biggest um, inspiration, but, you know, we didn't, didn't invent the genre. It's been around since, you know, the beat culture in the 50s, but we just kind of, like, made it a... Is irreverent and potty mouthed and whatever, you know, it was like a reflection of our personalities. And then other, I just think we kind of influenced other fanzines like Forced Exposure and Your Flesh that followed after. Now, touching back on that Henry Rollins picture, because I actually have the book in front of me and I pulled it up. I don't understand what he was upset about. Like, like what, what was he mad about? I guess just that he was depicted, you know, like... Uh, like an old hippie dude or something. But, you know, they always say um, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery or whatever. No, it's not exactly imitation. It's parody. But, yeah. you know, to be in a magazine at all is, and I'm 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 as self-deprecating as they come. I mean, you see that picture of me on the toilet that that guy drew or, you know, or him on the toilet, you know, jerking off to my picture. Um I, that stuff's funny. I mean, I make fun of myself on a daily basis, and but some people are a little more thin-skinned than that, I guess. I mean, like I, I'm a I'm a Henry Rollins fan. We actually just had him on the show last week, and so I was, you know, just talking with him. And I mean, looking at this picture, me being a fan, I would I would actually like want a poster-sized print of this. Like, I think it's pretty cool. I think it's a nice, nice piece of artwork, really. <laughs> I agree, but I guess he just wasn't. Uh... I guess, it, I don't know, maybe he was having a bad day, but I do remember the phone call and the, the hair on the back of my neck standing up because he could snap me like a twig at the time anyway. So probably still he could, but uh, <laughs> very intense. But, you know, I think he, in his, in, his, in his reminiscence, I think he remembered our sense of humor, which sort of permeated and dominated the whole proceedings. So. You know, we definitely like to make fun of people, and some people could handle it, and some people couldn't. You know, the whole TSOL thing is kind of well-documented. I just did that as a goof, just to mess with them, because I thought, you know, here's these big, burly surfer dudes from L.A., and I'm going to call them sissies and see what happens. I mean, Obviously, I didn't <laughs> think they really were sissies, and my booking agent, Ron Martinez, says, you know, man, we were all L.A. guys. We were like, we were looking at pictures of TSOL and pictures of the meat men and go, man, I think... I think the I think the Mima look like they you know TSOL could kick their ass you know they're like comparing sizing us up for for the final confrontation you know and it's just like really kind of silly and then the fact that uh the the story about Brian Baker being backstage at uh at the 9:30 club and talking smack about the whole thing and then saying that Ian was you know saying they were sissies and then Ian Mackay came bounding down the stairs like, hey, guys, what's happening? And the next thing he knows, he's jacked up against the wall. Sissies, huh? And Ian's like, you know, no, 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 no. He talked, you know, <laughs> being the master communicator, he talked his way out of it. But, you know, then the minute that they get back in the van and, you know, get to the next town and someone's like, hey, I heard you guys are sissies. So it was just, like, pretty funny that such a <laughs> such a passing goof became this. You know, it was just, like I said, it, it was a different time and it was a different place. There was no internet. Everything was word of mouth, uh, mailing, you know, you mailed copies of your zine to other zines. They mailed it, you know, record labels would trade records and send them to zines. It was just like a, it slowly 
it allowed the scene to become what it was. This, it, when it was a regional thing, there was like pockets of, of um, you know, this independent enthusiasm and, you know, all over the country. And every scene was fairly small. And, but these, what, that's, that was what the job of the fanzine was to kind of connect these, these different scenes and these different personalities. You know, I remember going to the box and getting a letter from, you know, D Boone from the Minutemen with the new 45. And it was just like, wow, you know, and just like records from danger house. And just, I just ate all that West coast stuff up to me, the West coast hardcore well, sort of was, that was it, you know, I mean, the Midwest stuff I like too, obviously, but all that danger house, all that LA and, and San Francisco stuff. And I mean, that was just like a real middle-class reaction to, um, that's what American hardcore was kind of an, a middle or upper middle-class reaction to the happenings overseas. And it was much more relevant to me as a, as a kid than uh, a kid. I was like 26. I was like 24 to 26 as I, you know, when I basically when I did the magazine, but I was still a kid, even though like, like the necros and the minor threat guys were all five and six years younger than me. They all looked at, looked up at me like I was an old man, but I was, I was I, the I drum major. Like... <laughs> yeah, I was the, I was the drum major. I was the one trying to document the proceedings. Like the, like what people say, why did you start a record label? I, I started a record label at, because I need, you know, the Necros and the Fix needed somebody to put their records out, so I started Touch and Go Records. And some people don't even know I started it. They, um, but you know, I didn't have it real long. I had, I just had it for a few releases, and then Corey said, you know, how about if I take this over and inject some money into it? And he took it to, you know, heights I never would have. I really didn't have a desire to run a record label. I just wanted to uh, write about this stuff and put out a magazine. And it's it's amazing, like, what you have inspired and what you have driven from all that, too. And one of the questions I have for you, because I was reading your, your intro essay, and your your intro essay to the book is just, it, it's just a great essay. It really is. And one of the things that I, that I pulled out of it that, that I kind of want to get your impression on, cause you, because you kind of alluded, and even during this interview, you alluded to, like, the whole, you know, it, it wasn't the same back then. You didn't have the Internet. But... Do you see or do you feel that like what you guys did with zines has impacted and kind of drove the internet to, to A, honestly, almost into being, but B, like you, you drove things like the blogs and the fan sites that are up and those sort of things. Do you, like, do you feel that like what you guys did kind of impacted and, and made that the next level? Mm, I don't think I was personally. I mean, I think it was kind of a logical progression that as, you know, print media and you know, that kind of thing became, you know, it, it obviously changed over the years from the independent to, you know, and then, you know, started to see, you know, spin and alternative press and all these big high gloss publications um, pop up. But, you know, I think the, you know, the street um, level uh, journalism, you know, is always there. It's always kind of bubbling under. I mean, now it's just way more immediate. Every any any anybody can have a blog, and not to, you know, I'm not saying it's any better or worse in that respect. Because I mean, there were bad fanzines and there were good fanzines, just like there's bad blogs and good blogs. It's just that everything is just way more immediate now. It's like it's in your it's in your face. It's 
here, or have you heard this new band? Yeah, I heard that last week. I've already moved on to something else kind of thing where back then, and I always tell this story, like Steve Miller tells from The Fix tells me a story. Well, I, I read the, about the first birthday party, Seven Inch and Touch and Go, and it was like six months before I could find the record. And it was like, it was six months of like, kind of like searching for this record, which seems absurd in the in the download age. And, you know, wondering when I was going to get to hear it. And then when I finally got it, it was every bit as good as you guys had said it would be. And it was just like, you know, it's, that's, it, the whole, that whole concept seems like the dark ages now. But it's, that's the way it was back then. These records, a lot of these were imports. They would, these stores would get two or three copies and they'd be gone. And I mean, we would scour these record stores. And, you know, you can see that in the reviews, there's just some real, like, obscurities. And that, we kind of did that on purpose. Sometimes we would say this really obscure record was great, even though it sucked, just to make people go out and try to find it. Kind of like the dick about the whole thing. Um, there was a couple stores that just seemed to just get the weirdest stuff. And, you know, and we'd, yeah. we'd go to stores. Even back then in 1980, 81, we'd travel around. Like, we'd go to Pittsburgh to, like, some Jim's Records. You got any, you know, 45s in the back? Yeah, you pull out some dusty boxes. And we'd go through these dusty boxes and find crime records and weirdos and pagans and all this stuff that was already a few years old and it was, you know, a buck 99 or 99 cents. And, and, um, so we were, we were just like, we would drive. I mean, literally we would once, once every month or two, we would drive from Lansing to wax tracks and sometimes we'd sleep in the car, you know, and be there when it opened and, um, and they'd have all the, it was just like Christmas morning and the guy, Jim, that ran it started to know us. So he would save us, you know, special editions like the Joy Division Sorted Sentimental. And he said, hey, I saved one of these for each of you guys, you know, this deluxe thing. And just like, wow. And uh, that Wax Tracks at the time was, they were just, they were importing everything. I mean, the UK subs, you know, 12 different UK subs records on 12 different colored vinyls, you know, three bucks a piece. And it was just like, wow. And, uh, so that was, you know, it was it was a passion for the the music. Like I said, me and Dave, we both kind of shared that. He was a he was the star running back. I was the super freak, big haired guy in the parking lot getting stoned. But you know, when we connected later, we both uh, realized that we both. He saw me walking down the street with a Weirdos album under my arm, and he's like, "That's Bob. I better turn around and he's got a Weirdos album." He's like, kind of, you know, that's weird, but that's kind of how it got started and we met up at a show and it was like, Hey, you want to start a magazine? Sure. Let's do it. So funny how this stuff goes down and it's all history. Yeah. And it's funny like what you say about the, the immediacy of, of the age today. I mean, you really don't have to wait for anything. Everything's online. Everything's immediately available. You know, there, there's right. almost no wait for anything. All right. right so, exactly. <clears throat> So one last question for you here, and then then we'll let you go. Um, back in '95, in '94, '95, I saw Guar for the first time ever, and the same time I saw Guar for the first time ever, I saw this other band that I kind of heard of but didn't know much about, and that was the Meat Men. So you guys came out, took the stage, and left an impact on me like no other opening act ever has or probably ever will. You came out, you did. Hope on a rope, for starters. That was crazy. 
um, the Green Acres theme song was probably one of the most amazing things I think I've ever seen a band do live. That blew my mind, just the way you guys executed that. But so I guess where I'm going is, can you talk about that tour a little bit? Because that, that seemed like, like you guys performed for a couple of years and then boom, imploded again. And then what have you been doing lately musically? Yeah, the Guar tour was awesome because uh, we got to, we've always been doing what I call the stink van tour, which is just the van and the trailer. And, um, you know, after a month, everyone's, the place stinks like an old shoe and, you know, everyone's bitching at each other, but we got to actually do a, a, a tour bus tour. And so there were two tour buses and we got a half a tour bus and Guar got a bus and a half. And I mean, just like it got, it let me for once in my life, see how the other half lives. You know, you, you, you crawl into your bunk and those buses don't even move when they're, when you're riding, you know, so you wake up and it's like one in the afternoon and you get out and walk into the club and there's, you know, a table full of sandwiches and drinks. And it's like, yeah, this is pretty sweet. And uh, I think we did six weeks with them. It was a secondary market tour. So it was like Fargo, Kalamazoo, Wichita, Salt Lake city, McAllen, Texas, all these like, you know, these, it's cool to play those kind of places because, you know, it's like the circus is in town, literally, when Guar is involved. And so everybody comes out, and um, it's like uh, it was it was really a, a special tour for me. And, um, well, I, 96, I just kind of like, I always just do this like a hobby, and when it starts to feel like, eh, I just kind of bag it. So I bagged it in 96, moved back to Michigan in 99, um, and around... 2007, I got a call from John Brandon, and he goes, we're doing a negative approach show in Detroit. How about you just come out and introduce us? And I'm like, okay. And then he calls me back and says, how about you come out and do a couple of meeting songs with my NA guys backing you up? And I'm like, oh, oh, I don't know. Let me think about that. Next thing you know, I'm out there doing like a half-hour set, and I'm like, well, this, this is fun. You know, I can still do this. And then a year later, I got a new, a, a new band of uh, Merry Pranksters together, the Meat Men, and we did that cover CD, Cover the Earth. And then there were some problems, so I kind of retooled and got some new guys, and those are the guys that are still with me. Um, and I'm having fun. We did 50 shows last year. We did 25 shows in 25 days out west and almost died in the process, but uh, we uh, we did it. and. Um, right now I'm working on a new album tentatively entitled Lansing Liberace and uh, we are going to Europe this fall and uh, we're playing a Pusa Fest in Montreal, Canada May 19th May 18th with the Dwarves which is pretty exciting because actually we've never played a show with the Dwarves before so uh, oh my goodness that's that, going to be insane that's gonna, yeah it's going to be awesome jeez like, so, I, yeah, I, we, we had Blag on the show a while back and he's He's crazy, you know, which is great. Oh, yeah. I, I can't picture you two on stage again. That'd be insane. <laughs> we actually wrote a special song just for them. So, oh my uh, goodness! Yeah, yeah. So we'll see. I'm not. I can't tell you what it what it is because I got to leave the the element of surprise there. But we wrote a special. Well, I'll, I'll I'll tell you why I wrote a song, and I you know part of it's just this like I you know like fake rivalry kind of thing, like big time wrestling that I kind of, I, I twi- tweet stuff about, you know, the dwarves, this and the dwarves that, but just, you know, of course I love, love them. Great band. But anyway, the, the story that I read said, Blag said that, well, yeah, I, I was, was thinking about starting a band and I was playing some punk records and I was playing that meat men record. And, you know, I, I thought these guys suck. We can do better than this. 
So I was like, okay, well, that inspired me to write a song. So <laughs> that's uh, that's all I can say. The rest of it is under uh, restraining a gag order. So, But suffice to say <laughs> that I'm sure they'll be tickled when they hear it. Tickled or really pissed off, but either way, I don't care. That's fantastic. I will definitely be looking for when you guys come through town. Hey, th- yeah, uh, thanks again, Tesco, for doing the for doing the interview today. We really appreciate it. All right, thanks, man. Take care. I always wanted to learn to play guitar, but never had the time. Then I heard about Progressions Music Studio. Progressions introduced me to an entirely new and convenient method of music instruction. They brought the music to me. The instructors from Progressions Music Studio came to my home with their knowledge and expertise, which saved me time and money. They worked around my schedule and tailored a program around my needs and skill level. Best of all, I learned to play music like a guitar king of the 1960s. We didn't spend all of our time with drills or tunes from the 1860s. Progressions Music Studio offers a lot more than guitar. In fact, they have instructors for almost all instruments. Now I can rock it out on my electric like never before. Just imagine what they can do for you or the budding musician in your family. Don't make excuses. Make music. Check them out on the web at progressionsmusicstudio.com. That's P-R-O-G-R-E-S-S-I-O-N-S, musicstudio.com. Or call 724-777-4678. The Vans Warped Tour 2012, where music makes the world new. Starring The Used, All Time Low, Falling in Reverse, Reeve Carolina, Taking Back Sunday, July 12th, First Niagara Pavilion. Get all the info at VansWarpTour.com. Tickets are on sale now at LiveNation.com. All Ticketmaster outlets or charge by phone. The Vans Warp Tour 2012. All right, I guess that wraps out another episode of Iron City Rocks. We invite you to check us out at IronCityRocks.com. Facebook, we are Iron City Rocks. Twitter, Iron City Rocks. So we are not hard to find. Uh, also want to mention... As I did in the last episode, Iron City Rocks now is sponsored by Guitar Center Pittsburgh, which is in Robinson, uh, near the Pittsburgh International Airport. Uh, I want to remind you they've got a couple really cool events going on. Uh, this Tuesday, which is going to be the day that this episode will debut, this is actually recorded in advance, but uh, Tuesday, day after Memorial Day, will be the Battle of the Blues final at the Guitar Center in Robinson. So you want to check that out. It's at 7 o'clock. Uh, promise to be a great great time there's been a long history of great blues guitarists in the pittsburgh area so if you're in the area and want to check that out and also want to remind you of something that i was not aware of uh, but i certainly intend to learn more about a guitar center every saturday morning 10 a.m nationwide every guitar center including this one in pittsburgh offer classes on recording uh, and coming up uh, i believe the first week of june is the uh, series will start on Pro Tools, the new version of Pro Tools. So if you're a musician, uh, I don't have to tell you what Pro Tools are, or is, I should say. Uh, so you want to check that out. Uh, it's free class. It's about an hour every week. Uh, you can learn all about all that great stuff. So if you go to Guitar Center, you can check that out. Or if you go to ironcityrocks.com, click on the Guitar Center link, it'll take you right to the Pittsburgh Guitar Center, and it's got their list of events there as well. So invite you to check that out um, and also um, get in there and get yourself some new gear. You deserve it. So, until next time, it's been John for Iron City Rocks and we'll talk to you later. (laughs) 